And welcome everybody, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is another segment of RegWatch on GFN.TV. The unrelenting war on safer nicotine products continues unabated, despite growing evidence that reduced-risk products such as nicotine vapes are proven to be highly successful for millions of smokers trying to quit. According to new data published by the Global State of Tobacco Harm Reduction, there were 82 million people vaping nicotine worldwide in 2021, up dramatically over 2020 by nearly 20%. Yet, there are still an estimated 1.1 billion smokers across the globe, with the vast majority living in low- and middle-income countries. What obstacles are in the way of THR projects from reaching these smokers? Joining us today to discuss this question and more is Dr. Sudanshu Padwarden, founder and medical director of the Centre for Health Research and Education in the UK. Dr. Sood is a British Indian, UK licensed medical doctor who is passionate about helping people quit risky forms of tobacco. For the past two decades, he's lived and worked in three continents, doing senior roles in research, strategy, and policy in the pharmaceutical and tobacco industries. Dr. Sood, thanks for coming on the show. Brian, thanks for having me. First off, how would you rate the state of tobacco harm reduction globally? In one line, it's a very bad shape. It's in a very bad shape. Why is that? Uh, how long have you got? <laughs> well, we got 20 minutes. Good. So look, we can start digging into some of the, uh, the, the sort of factors that play have played over the last few years in, in how tobacco harm reduction has been perceived, how products have come to the market, how the market has responded, how consumers have responded. On one hand, how regulators have responded, how industries have uh, reacted, and uh, how the tobacco control community has looked at these products with a lot of certainty and uncertainty, depending on which part of the world you are. So you put all these things together, and that takes us to what is uh, behind the way tobacco harm reduction products have been received or not received. Uh, and that kind of leads to the point of and hence, tobacco harm reduction as a broader kind of approach to public health uh, is in a bad shape. And you yourself stated that. I think I'll just throw back the data at you. Uh, 1.3 even uh, billion users of risky tobacco forms. So not just smoking, mind you, we're talking about oral tobacco and other forms of smokeless tobacco predominantly used in South Asia, for example, and Africa. Um, and you mentioned 80 plus million people using nicotine vapes and maybe at throw in a few more uh, tens of millions using heated products, heated tobacco products, and snus in, in Scandinavia, you're still not crossing uh, 15, 20% of that uh, otherwise you, population of risky tobacco users. So uh, that itself says a lot. Yeah, so if you look at globally, the whole issue, would you say then that safer nicotine products have made a dent, or are you saying that they haven't? Depends if you look at uh, the glass half full or empty. I think they have made a little little dent, but I think there's a long way to go. And uh, the work we all do in different ways is trying to, to address that. Because uh, if you ask me what drives me in this work and is, is simply the fact that consumers should be at the core of this entire conversation. And oftentimes they're forgotten. They're not given the information. Products are not available or affordable for them or uh, or or, or they don't know about these products. And uh, and those who should be advising them about these products are either not aware of them or, or ill-informed, misinformed even. And then that takes me to my favorite topic, uh, which underpins the entire tobacco harm reduction problem. And that is the nicotine illiteracy that's prevalent 
across the sections of the uh, the broader stakeholder community, including medical doctors. Nicotine illiteracy. Did I hear that correct? You're right. It is nicotine literacy or illiteracy, depending on what what you mean here. One is where people understand and are confident about the fact that it is nicotine that's the addictive substance in all forms of tobacco, risky or not risky. Uh, on the other hand, it is not the carcinogen. It is not the one causing the diseases that are caused by risky forms of tobacco. I keep on saying risky forms, mind you, uh, predominantly the combustible forms of tobacco, uh, 5,000 plus chemicals and so on. But nicotine is not one of them that's causing these lung diseases or heart disease or cancer particularly. And not knowing this is what I would call nicotine illiteracy. Dr. Sood, please share with our audience some of your background. I think it would be helpful to have that understanding as we dive into these issues. So uh, I'm from India. I trained uh, in medicine in India, did my postgraduate studies in California. I was working in Singapore uh, for a couple of years in the pharmaceutical industry. And that's when I saw there was a, a role to be uh, a role advertised in the UK. Uh, with a large tobacco company um, and they were talking about harm reduction and they wanted to establish the framework for assessing future less risky products and so on. So I interviewed in Cambridge uh, with British American Tobacco and uh, I used for my preparation this massive big book called Clearing the Smoke and uh, that was the, uh, the Institute of Medicine uh, report from 2001 and that really opened my eyes myself uh, on what they propositioned. They were talking about how nicotine could be delivered uh, in a safer form. They were looking at how the risk from current tobacco products could be reduced and assessed and then be uh, made available to current users of these products uh, who cannot or will not quit. And that kind of got me into the space of tobacco harm reduction, perhaps much sooner and much earlier than most of the people who are in this space. And I'm, I'm, I feel very privileged to have been there at that time. You founded an organization with your wife, the Center for Health Research and Education. Tell us about that and the types of projects you work on. So we started the Center for Health Research and Education in 2019. Uh, I left the industry. Uh, Dr. Pooja, my partner, she is a practicing physician. Uh, we used to argue at home almost every night uh, on the topic of tobacco harm reduction, mind you. And that was primarily, this is before 2019, because I would come back home uh, over years of my work in, in, the, in the policy, in the standard space, uh, excited about my discovery that nicotine is not the problem and, 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 and my newfound literacy in nicotine. And the argument was not about the facts about it. It was more about yeah, but this is not being understood by the practicing clinicians that she would see around her. We founded the center primarily to bridge this gap we felt was very uh, wide, the gap between policy, which is sorted in a way in the US, UK, and the practice by clinicians, by other key uh, influences of decision makers and influences of, of consumers, as we like to call them. So we said, well, we have to bridge this gap. We understand the language of doctors. We understand what the policy is saying. Can we bring it together? So, Dr. Sood, let's uh, talk a bit more about nicotine. Specifically, I wanted to share that I love nicotine. And as a former smoker and now committed vapor, I see nothing wrong with it. Yet it's framed as the demon drug. Why is that? My medical education is a good, good point to start. You know, back in India, when I was in medical school, we were taught about tobacco and the harms from tobacco. But it was often interchangeably used with nicotine. So 
if you think of an equation here, it's like tobacco equals nicotine equals smoke equals cigarettes equals cancer. And that kind of just, they were just clubbed it all together. There was no effort made by, by the teachers or by us even to disentangle these into their constitution, into their constituent parts, let's say. So we would assume that this is all one thing. So, hey, if somebody is saying nicotine equals tobacco equals cancer, all bad stuff, advise patients to stop it. Now, uh, what worsened is that, worsened that was that nicotine replacement therapy products, NRT, uh, as with nicotine gums, patches, lozenges, uh, these products were not that available, are still not that available in, in India across the country. Uh, and even if they are in, in, in textbooks of medicine, you're not taught anything beyond the point saying, yeah, there are some products called nicotine replacement therapy products. You should prescribe them to people who are trying to quit. And that's it. There is nothing beyond that. There is no level of handholding education on how to use these products and so on, but also not giving them that sort of that powerful message that, look, it is the nicotine they smoke for, but they die of something else, which is the, in the case of smoke products, the 5,000 plus chemicals of which 150 plus carcinogens. In the case of oral tobacco products, the, the, the few tens or hundreds of chemicals that they add to make it uh, uh, tasty and attractive, but also with no regulation, no control. So this is never taught. And the doctors are thinking, hmm, I may be able to prescribe nicotine replacement, maybe for a few days, a few weeks. No. The way you look at it now, now that I'm enlightened and nicotine literate, as I like to call myself, I see that that demonization has slowly been washed out from my brain because I've thought about it. And I look at the evidence base around me and said, hmm, I've managed to disentangle the two. I can see that if I can deliver nicotine in its clean, safer form to those who are addicted to nicotine, but are suffering from the consequences of consuming it in a risky kind of package, cigarettes or BDs or oral tobacco, I might be able to help them live a healthier, longer, uh, happier life. And then that, that, that is kind of where it comes to me, for, for me. So who is responsible for entangling nicotine with, say, cancer? Uh, this is a very tricky one, and I don't want to get into a blame game here, mind you, Brent. But what I would say is that when communication was done about the harms of tobacco and cancer, obviously one big one, or even cardiovascular disease, lung disease, uh, it might have been, I would hope, in, not intentional, but just sloppy communication. Nobody took the effort to say, well, actually, it is not this that is the problem, not nicotine. That's the, the, the disease-causing part. Yes, it is the addictive chemical. I think this nuance is often lost. And, and I, look, I think about a, a communicator trying to communicate this message. And I can imagine the challenge they face. Oh, yeah, but, yeah, but this is the problem, but this is not, but this is the addictive substance. You might just jumble folks up. So you want to just keep it simple. Hey, look, it's all very bad. Just stop using it. But for sure, that's not as simple and as easy as we know. Having known the harms of tobacco for the last three, four, five decades in this country, in the UK, and at least three decades in India, uh, you still see the millions consuming, hundreds of millions in the case of India, and they're not stopped. And there is a reason for that. They're addicted to that form of nicotine and the way it's delivered, the way it's consumed. And uh, this demonization, willfully or unwillfully, uh, is leading them to not access safer nicotine uh, with confidence. It's interesting because it appears to me, both as somebody who covers this and also as a layperson, that public health spends millions and millions of dollars more and more time and effort demonizing nicotine than demonizing heroin. I can respond to that. But more importantly, I think what's happened is public health has spent a lot of time 
trying to ensure, and rightly so, ensure that new users of these products don't emerge in the market. So there's been a lot of effort over the last few decades in terms of all the global tobacco control activity, which is to prevent initiation of tobacco use. Good job. Where it's really failed, and I and I, I can see the effects of that now, not just in India and South Asia and in the low and middle income countries, as we like to call the LMICs, even in the UK, effort for cessation support or quitting support has either been half-hearted or it's all contingent on funding or lack or availability of funding. So I think public health has failed there. They have not understood that there are existing people who are still consuming very risky forms of tobacco who are gonna lose at least 10, 15, 20, 30 years of their lives prematurely. And no effort is made to invest energy effort and messaging on cessation. And, and before you get too excited or carried away or worried that I'm trying to say cessation as a medical term, please don't misunderstand me. Yeah. Tobacco harm reduction can be a pathway to cessation. Reducing harms from tobacco by switching or by completely, uh, you know, the, the point is about quitting risky forms of tobacco. You call it cessation, I call it cessation, you call it harm reduction. At the end of it, if the consumer is using nicotine in a significantly safer form, that's good job done for me. And I think that's where uh, public health has failed. What is this urban epidemic that I've seen you write about with regards to LMICs? The urban epidemic I was referring to, if I'm not mistaken, is, is a very complex picture. There is uh, a whole new generation of young folks. And, I'm, and I don't know if you've been to or if you have seen on, on television or whatever. If you go to these urban IT parks or business parks in, in Mumbai or Bangalore or Delhi or Hyderabad, uh, the, the folks working in those parks, uh, in those IT parks, uh, we'll see a lot of them smoking outside. That is their way to get their break. So this is a young, healthy population uh, of educated folks, you would assume. And uh, smoking is pretty prevalent there, but that's not the only problem, mind you. The other one is uh, women smokers. And that that's particularly close to my heart because I think that there is a whole new generation of, of the women population of uh, half the population of a country, uh, which is just e a young population, uh, a population that uh, has such promise and hope, and, and they are smoking for whatever reason, be it for managing their weight, or at least what they think is they're doing is they're managing their weight or, or appearing to be cool, uh, appearing to be equal to their male counterparts. There may be a lot of theories around why they do it, but that doesn't uh, change the problem that is they're doing it. And, and the impact of that on their own lives their future generations is, is going to be obvious. And this is not addressed. I don't see this being addressed or talked about apart from this, the work we did last month uh, on the International Women's Day by actually raising an awareness campaign about break the bias, we said in our communication, we said break the bias about healthcare practitioners when they see their women patients, uh, don't think that they may not be also having a tobacco problem to deal with, offer them support, give them cessation tools, including nicotine replacement. And we were surprised by the positive response we got. Doctors came back to us and said, wow, yeah, we never thought of tobacco use, especially among urban women. Uh, we need to even ask about it. But now that you've raised the profile of the issue and sensitized us to it, uh, we obviously see that that's something we have to address head on. So uh, that's an example of the urban epidemic of tobacco smoking in, uh, in, in countries such as India, which are already going through a massive uh, kind of epidemiological, uh, but also population level change. So do you think that, um, or does research show whether or not tobacco reduced risk products are top of mind 
for these people? Do they even have an understanding of what THR is and that there's you know products available? I think they do know that there are products and I know many of the uh, this generation I'm talking about. So we're talking about a very specific uh, kind of subpopulation within a country as vast as India or any other country. And, and I'm sure you've seen some of the research that's out there. Uh, the urban population, those who are well-read, well-informed, do know about electronic cigarettes, for example. Uh, some may have heard about heated tobacco products, uh, depending on how much, uh, whether they travel internationally. They, of course, come out to Europe. They, of course, see that's being used by people uh, in, in, uh, in, the, in the public. And they are curious. They take back products. But then there is nothing to buy at their local shop. So, again, they are kind of like, okay, fine. I go back to my smoking. And so they are aware. They have dabbled with the technology in the product. But when they go to their doctor, think what happens. A, a, an Indian doctor is going to tell their, tell their smoker patient, oh, I'm not sure about this. These are banned by the government, right? So I don't think you should even try that. Uh, I mean, try quitting your cigarettes, but for sure, don't go into this other newfangled device. And herein lies the problem. You've mentioned this several times now in the interview, Dr. Sudan. It seems to be that you believe the biggest problem is with the medical community. No, no, I wouldn't say that. And look, I mean, as my uh, my peers in the medical community, I, I respect the amount of time they have to treat and manage their patients' complaints and, and their, the symptoms and, and provide the best health care uh, with a good intention. So that is never doubted. And we have seen that in the COVID epidemic. So I would never say that. What I would say, though, that is they're an important component in the decision-making process of consumers. The consumers of tobacco who will come to their doctor as a patient uh, are there and in many cases presenting with the problem that's a result of their tobacco consumption. In many cases, you come with a cardiovascular condition, you come with diabetes, there's always, and if you're a smoker, there is for sure a big chance that that smoking has contributed significantly to that disease outcome or the disease itself. So for doctors to not deal with that is, uh, is not right, is all I'm saying. And then I'm not saying the doctors are not doing it on intention or for, for no reason. It is because they haven't been given the tools for them to feel empowered and what I like to call nicotine confident for them to say, here, my patient, here is your pill for your blood pressure, but here is also your nicotine replacement therapy. Come back to me in seven days and 21 days. And here is the app you need to download to ensure that you will get enough prompts every day. So whenever you feel like smoking, it's going to tell you, actually go for a run, uh, you know, take a sip of water, take your NRT. And that's not what's happening. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> well, no, but I didn't, it's an important thing, but I, I think you made it uh, a bit clearer there. So if we were to get more medical professionals to be nicotine confident, then that would make a, a bigger difference. It definitely. And look, I mean, we are talking about 1.3 billion or so people out there who are consuming risky forms of tobacco. You're talking about a few million healthcare professionals. If you add all the doctors, the dentists, the, the paraclinical staff, I'm just looking at it as a problem, which can I reach to 1.3 billion people? I wish I could, but I can't. Can I reach 10 million healthcare professionals around the world? Maybe not. But if I reach a smaller section of that healthcare professionals, especially their trainers, at the medical school level, every professor of medicine, of surgery, of ops gynae, uh, is churning out over a, over a lifespan of teaching hundreds, thousands of medical professionals, same with every paraclinical profession. If we were to empower these trainers with simple nicotine literacy, nicotine confidence, think of the long-term impact of this in terms of their behavior, how they will address their patients' real, real needs, unmet, felt, but real needs of their patients in, in quitting tobacco. Of course, this is one of the solutions, right? The rest of the solutions are then making sure that the products are available and affordable. 
uh, and appealing enough for these people to actually take on and, and stick to. So, but it's an important part of the, uh, the solution for sure. Dr. Sid, I know you'll be speaking at the Global Forum on Nicotine Conference in Warsaw, Poland this June 16th to 18th. Why is a conference like GFN 22 important and what might your message be? The Global Forum on Nicotine is perhaps one of the only conferences where over the last decade, it has brought together all imaginable, all possible stakeholders who have a, who have a role, who have a stake in the, uh, in the, the tobacco nicotine conversation. So be it the industry, uh, which is often kept out of some of these conversations uh, and increasingly so. Uh, and by industry, I'm not just saying tobacco industry or, or one particular part of the, uh, the sector. I say any industry is welcome. Uh, and that's what GFN does, the Global Forum does. Consumers are present in large numbers. And I, I have said for the last, you know, for the entire interview, consumers are often forgotten. This is one place where consumers are not forgotten. They are central to the conversation. It's a time for Global Forum of uh, on, on Nicotine to, uh, to really be very confident about its very central role in, uh, in, in supporting this global consumer movement.